Caitlin Colucci is a UK registered dietitian. She specializes in IBS and the low FOB diet, as well as other more complex gastrointestinal disorders. You know, things like Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, celiac disease, uh, and pancreatic disease that we discussed on the podcast before. You may have seen Caitlin before contributing to the gut health conversation on the BBC or giving us useful diet hacks in the Daily Mail. She may not line up with your typical dietitian profile. She's passionate about the role of yoga, meditation, and breath work in recovery. Perhaps the future of gastrointestinal health is a slightly more holistic one. Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. I'm really uh, interested. We were talking just before we started there. You know, you 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 trained as a as a UK registered kind of dish, uh, dietitian. There was a, a a great career in the in in the NHS waiting for you. What sort of drew you to a sort of slightly more uh, holistic uh, approach to sort of health? Yeah, thank you um, so much for that wonderful introduction, Ollie, and thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Um, you know, it's a really good question because, you know, I've always been a passionate gut health dietitian and I've worked as a gut health dietitian now for uh, over eight years, I think. Um, and, you know, I really have, <clears throat> excuse me, witnessed how crucial diet and nutrition are for optimal gut health. You know, I've worked with hundreds of patients and, you know, my focus has really been on tailoring their diets to improve digestion and absorption of nutrition, you know, suggesting specific diets or foods to help sort of minimise their gut symptoms as much as possible. But with anything to do with the gut, it really isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. And in the world of nutrition, where sort of quick fixes and isolated solutions really do dominate the wellness industry, I was starting to realise that there was almost like a missing piece to the puzzle, in particular with a group of individuals who needed a much more personalised approach to help reclaim back their gut health, which is those with irritable bowel syndrome and other functional gut disorders. So sort of just, just yeah. So I was just going to say, just just taking a step back there for for some people that are listening, because I think this is actually an important thing to 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 understand, is um, the 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 difference. But a lot of people won't understand what the difference between a nutritionist and uh, a dietitian is, and I think that would be really helpful in the context of the conversation that we're going to have today. So can you just help us sort of understand what 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 the difference is in America for a lot of our audience? <laughs> they'll understand a dietitian very well because it's you know, it's quite a mainstream thing there, but can you just help us understand that to start with? Absolutely. So a dietitian is someone who is um, educated to be able to apply nutrition to the human body. Whereas if you train to become a nutritionist, you perhaps learn about nutrition in the sense of what vitamin A does, what vitamin D does, um, what foods you can find those vitamins and minerals in. But dietetics is applying that nutrition to the human body. And therefore, we are able to work with patients who have specific medical conditions and understand how those medical conditions can impact the way they're able to digest and absorb nutrition. And so if somebody, let's take the example of somebody who's got like an irritable bowel disease, um, is there going to be a different, are they going to experience a different thing if they go to a dietitian and if they go to a nutritionist with the same kind of uh, problem? 
Yes, absolutely. So we have um, irritable bowel syndrome, which is IBS, and then we have inflammatory bowel disease, which is IBD, both very different um, clinical conditions. Um, both affect the gut in different ways. Um, but yes, absolutely. If you go to see a dietitian for either of those conditions, they will be able to um, fully assess and advise on specific and complex dietary plans to help minimize gut symptoms. Um, you know, I'm not saying all nutritionists don't have experience working with patients and clients, but that would require additional training after they've completed their university degree, for example. But if you went to see a, so if you went to see a dietitian and you had, let, let's say in the case of IBS, would, is that something where they would be able to do advanced microbiome testing, blood testing? Would, would they, what would the, would the treatment be the same? Would the outcomes be the same? I think that's an interesting, mm. I think an interesting topic. Absolutely. So not all dietitians can request or complete any sort of um, investigations or blood tests. However, we work very closely with a multidisciplinary team and would therefore be able to refer and um, advise on which investigations to complete and where to get the tests done. Or if you work within a clinic that has doctors or nurses that can do that, you can suggest and recommend that they go for specific tests. Um, I suppose, what was the other part of the question? Would the outcomes be the same? If yeah. So like, so like, let's take a trip. And, and just to give you kind of more, more, more context is Caitlin, I think we have a lot of people that kind of listen to this podcast or follow on the YouTube and stuff like that. And a lot of people are arriving, they kind of find this information and they're trying to work out what do I do in the UK, we have this phenomenal healthcare system. And they're understanding, okay, well, do I go through that? Is that going to be the quickest way to solve my problems? Are they going to be able to? Do I go mm -hmm. to a dietitian? Do I go to a gastroenterologist? Do I go to a nutritionist? It's quite confusing for people at the moment. And that's mm -hmm. why it's so interesting to understand, well, if you went to a dietitian, what, what would that kind of treatment look like? And is that wildly different to what a nutritionist's kind of outcome would look like? Yeah, absolutely. So it can be really difficult to know where to start if you think you might have IBS, for example, or you're suffering from some sort of gut disorder. The best bet is to try to go see your doctor or GP, whether that's through the National Health Service or a private doctor or GP, just because the symptoms of IBS overlap so closely with other more complex gut disorders like IBD, celiac disease. And so we need to just rule out anything more sinister before a diagnosis of IBS can be made. Then once that's been done, then you would ideally be referred to a dietitian because dietitians are the people who work within the healthcare service rather than nutritionists. Um, so unless you were going to see a nutritionist who had extensive training in IBS and how to manage patients with IBS, they wouldn't be able to help you in the same way as dietitians would be. And then once you, once they say, right, you've got IBS, this is what we understand the thing is, would the treatments look different between a dietitian and a nutritionist? Well, in the um, UK, we have clinical guidelines for the diagnosis and management of IBS. So we have, <clears throat> excuse me, nice guidelines here in the UK. So the National Institute for Healthcare and Excellence. And that's very clearly divided into what we call first line dietary recommendations, which are sometimes even given by doctors and therefore probably, yes, could be given by a nutritionist, which include things like 
eating a bit healthier, increasing or decreasing your fibre intake, increasing your fluid intake, decreasing caffeine and alcohol, and minding your intake of things like spicy foods, fatty foods, and basically just trying to move a bit more. So advice that uh, most healthcare professionals could give to a patient. The next stage of those clinical guidelines do recommend that if patients haven't had symptom improvement with those first line recommendations, we call them, then they would be appropriate to trial something called a low FODMAP diet. But a low FODMAP diet must only be given by a healthcare professional who is trained in the low FODMAP diet. So as far as I know, dietitians are the only ones who can be trained in the low FODMAP diet because you have to have the prerequisite of being a dietitian to be able to do the training. And I've seen, I think, a lot of the a lot of the sort of uh, functional practitioners that we we've had on the podcast. Certainly, a lot of the US ones has been uh, a lot of criticism around the FODMAP diet for people being put on the long, long FODMAP diet, finding a kind of resolution in symptoms, and then just being left there for years on 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 that diet. But when they try to kind of reintroduce foods again, their symptoms, you know, return essentially yeah how what what's yeah how is what what's your sort of how do you manage that as a clinician yeah absolutely so the low FODMAP diet for anyone listening who doesn't know what it is is a specific evidence-based diet which is aimed to uh, reduce symptoms in those with irritable bowel syndrome and we have really good evidence behind it to show that it can reduce symptoms in up to 75% of people when Um, when sort of taught to patients by someone who has an expertise in the diet. Now, we often see doctors, GPs, patients themselves just going online, Googling a low FODMAP diet, excluding tons of foods from their diet and just staying on it long term. And that can actually do more harm than good because it actually decreases the diversity of the gut microbiome if patients have been on a low FODMAP diet for more than about eight weeks. So that's something we want to try to avoid because the the, the classic structure of the low FODMAP diet is a FODMAP exclusion or FODMAP restriction, which is when you reduce your intake of these highly fermentable foods in the large intestine, which can therefore help to reduce gut symptoms. Then the second stage is called FODMAP reintroduction, which is when you would work with a specialist dietitian to reintroduce foods in a specific order, in a specific way, because some groups are either grouped as whole food groups or individual, and reintroduce them in the way, a structured reintroduction to identify um, specific tolerance foods and also how much of those specific, specific foods can trigger symptoms. And then the third and final stage, which is often forgotten about, is what we call FODMAP personalization, which is when you would work with your healthcare professional to essentially create this personalized diet for yourself so you can navigate the real world moving forward to help minimize gut symptoms as much as possible. And 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 with the with the kind of reintroduction of, of the FODMAPs for, for for lots of people that have gone through kind of uh, IBS treatment, there seems to be and, and I don't kind of fully understand this as well, but there seems to be um, uh, with a say you went to see a, a kind of IFM practitioner there might be a focus on specific supplements and protocols to support specific areas of digestion. Does that exist within the dietitian's field of like how does that work? I don't I don't know much about it. 
So we recommend supplements and medications if there is good evidence to suggest that they can be effective. However, as dietitians, our approach is always a food first approach. So rather than like putting a band-aid on the problem and saying, take all these supplements and your problems will be solved, we really try to get to the root cause of what might be causing or triggering these symptoms through food. Because, you know, with, um, uh, for example, you know, any other um, I guess like bad habit that you're trying to stop or if you know something is a problem as in like smoking drinking too much alcohol you can just stop those doing those things you can stop drinking alcohol you can stop smoking but when it comes to food although you may be aware that maybe there's a specific food that is triggering your gut symptoms or there's a specific food which might be impacting the function of your gut we can't stop eating. We still need to eat food to nourish our body, to nourish our mind. So it's really important to try to get to the bottom of what foods might be causing you the biggest issues so that you can eat a healthier diet and one that is more conducive to help improve the function of your own gut and not just take supplements to kind of put a band-aid over the problem. And so do you think when you kind of see the future of how we're sort of looking after people in like, say, the NHS, say there was an unlimited budget going forward? Well, actually, I suppose a better question is. Do you think that there. Do you think there is an element of. Uh, treatment in a more traditional model, say, like the NHS that is outdated at the moment do you think there are things that do need to be slightly more holistic in the approach because there is quite a medication first approach in some areas yeah absolutely i definitely don't think it's outdated because all the um work that is done within the national health service is up to date evidence based you know as dietitians, that's doctors, physios, OTs, speech and language therapists, you have to keep up to date with the latest evidence. And that really is implemented within the NHS. I think that where the problem lies is that Western medicine has only gotten us so far. And there are more holistic practices that we can tap into that we know has started to show a significant impact on gut health or overall health. It's just that we don't necessarily have the large clinical trials to start to be able to integrate these recommendations into cl national clinical guidelines because mm. these holistic practices are often actually quite hard to study because how do you study the impact of meditation on mental health, for example, <laughs> in an individual? But also... Uh, historically, these practices like meditation, for example, breath work, even yoga, they have previously been seen as quite woo-woo and therefore the, the funding hasn't been there to be able to back the research for these specific practices. However, we have tons of ancestral data. It's been practices that have been done for like thousands and thousands of years. And, um, you know, that is also saying something. And we're going to, I'm really interested to talk a little bit more about these kind of like holistic approaches, uh, how, how uh, yoga, meditation, and I think you're right, like when things have to be, there is a reason why things have to go through clinical trials, right? Things have to be data-led. The NHS can't just kind of launch things. But I'm assuming as well, there is a lot, you must see a lot of this as well. Like, I think it's difficult to measure things like meditation, yoga, things like that, mindfulness, although there are lots of trials now going on around these areas, psychedelics, their impact, mental health, all of these things going on, which I think is really exciting. Um, 
But I'm I'm curious around things like you know we I spoke to an expert a little while back who was who was uh, talking about acid reflux. This is a thing that you'll come across a lot of the time. Where a sort of traditional model is PPI medication. People come in. There is a dietary change. There is PPI medication. But there is a growing kind of relatively evidence-based theory with kind of clinical trials about how stomach acids may well be, it may be a low stomach acid that could be contributing in a small, in a portion of patients that could be causing a problem. And that does feel like a bit of a juxta position. And it's really interesting. You chat to a nutritionist and they would quite overtly say, oh, they'll call it like an acid myth. And I wonder whether that is a slightly more sensitive place for you to be because I'm just interested to know because you do sit between these two worlds. It's quite a unique perspective on it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we have to remember that there will always be in, in the in the world of science, there will always be differing opinions about things. There will always be a scientific study that could back up maybe something that you're trying to prove because studies are funded by certain people and we have to acknowledge that the research is always changing and I think just be open to what we hear and investigate for ourselves okay where is this idea coming from and could there be some truth in this yeah so actually what in some ways what you're saying is look when you go to the NHS you're dealing with somebody that like there is evidence-based long-term clinical trials on this there are safe guidelines around it but because there is a long process with lots of clinical trials and guidelines as well it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the gospel that's the thing that's going to be the right way to do things always so it's sometimes good to get a bit more of a broader kind of understanding of topics that's kind of the impression that I'm getting yeah absolutely and you know having trust you know I don't want to be talking negatively about the NHS in any way because you know having trust in these healthcare professionals that they are you know at the cutting edge of what they do and they are the expert in their field and I think you know, a lot of patients are almost reluctant to listen to healthcare professionals because maybe they have heard something else. But it's just that, you know, we're just all doing our job here in terms of, like like you said, recommending these evidence-based um, uh, recommendations from, from all these guidelines. And so let's talk a little bit about uh, physical exercise, the kind of impact on our gut health. I think... Um, uh, more and more research coming out now that it's not just about what you kind of put into your body when you're working with clients now how much of that kind of plays a role in the sort of recovery of clients how much weight and emphasis do you put on it yeah um you know equal equal measures as you know what you put into your body in terms of what you're eating and drinking so you know there is this idea that exercise can have an effect on in particular the gut microbiota so the community of trillions of bacteria living within the large intestine and there is you know as you say more emerging evidence to suggest that the link between exercise and the gut microbiota is that exercise can increase the diversity of our gut microbes, sometimes even irrespective of diet. So there are things which can influence the gut that aren't 
just food related is the point I'm trying to make here. Um, but the key with any type of exercise is, it, is it's about sustained exercise. So there's no point going really hard one day a week and then, you know, sitting on the sofa like a couch potato for the other six days a week. It's about consistent and sustained exercise, which will have the biggest impact on gut health. And the type of exercise really doesn't matter. It's about finding something that you enjoy, that you're able to sustain for a couple of days per week and aiming to get the heart rate up. And, you know, current Public Health England guidelines recommend that we aim to do at least, you know, 30 minutes of moderate intensity exercise five days per week. Or you could split that up slightly differently. So you could do an hour on one day, an hour on another day, and then half an hour on another day, for example. But the type of exercise that I particularly recommend when working with patients in the gut health space is something like yoga, because there really are four key elements to yoga, which can directly impact gut health. So the first would be the physical movement itself. So the stretching and compression of yoga and yoga postures can really help with any trapped gas within the gut. It's basically like giving the gut a little massage. Um, the breathing element of yoga, so breathing, which is really at the core of yoga practice, can activate that parasympathetic nervous system system, that rest and digest nervous system, which can really help with the digestion of food and gut function. Um, the third thing is the mindfulness or meditation element of yoga. So it's about focusing on the present moment. When we meditate, this sense of relaxation washes over us. Again, it can activate that rest and digest nervous system. But also the mindfulness can help us to learn to embrace those slightly more uncomfortable feelings in the body, whether it's uncomfortable feeling of being held in a bit of an odd yoga pose, but also taking that then off the mat uh, if you do have a slight um, discomfort in the abdomen, you know, understanding, okay, is this chronic? Is it just like a bit of food passing through my digestive system? Because that is also normal. But a lot of these patients become hypersensitive and hyper aware of everything that is happening in the gut. And then the fourth thing about yoga is just the relaxation in general. So I've said this already, but you know, it's about activating that parasympathetic nervous system, which helps us to relax. And that's key because it helps to reconnect the gut and the brain via the gut brain axes, which can help to decrease levels of cortisol, the stress hormone, decrease what we call visceral hypersensitivity in the gut, which is something that leads to then the abdominal pain. And so do you, do you think that there is a correlation and, and maybe like we can't, this is not a clinical correlation, but do you see uh, uh, behavioral patterns in people that kind of have IBS? Do you, do you see a connection between people that you could say perhaps are, uh, I want to be careful about the descriptions that I kind of use, but um, uh, have a more fast paced life, maybe have slightly kind of higher anxiety? Like, do you see that kind of connection with people um, experiencing those kind of digestive issues because I know that there is kind of more re I know it can be a bit of chicken and egg right like the more yes. discomfort you have the more stressed you kind of feel about it it's not exclusive but yes absolutely that stress symptom cycle like that you're kind of referring to but but in regards to the group of patients with IBS um, not everyone so this isn't generalized to everyone but I did start to notice that patients with IBS did seem to be 
how do I put this, like disconnected from themselves on a slightly deeper level. So they were living in a constant state of stress, anxiety, imbalance, rushing through life, eating on the go and lacking the time to really nurture their own well-being, essentially. And although dietary changes would make some difference, often that only added to the stress of their daily life by having to adhere to maybe even something like a low FODMAP diet. Mm. And there was this striking disconnection between their minds and their bodies. And because IBS is now recognised as a disorder of the gut-brain interaction, it quickly became clear to me that what was needed was to address not only the gut end of this gut-brain axis by changing the dietary side of things, but also to focus on the brain end of this vital axis. So that's when incorporating the techniques to relax the nervous systems come into play and can really have a profound impact on gut health. It's interesting. I think how many people do you have you seen that have got, you know, really kind of like significant IBS or something like this, and then will say, um, uh, and you say, oh, what, do you ever kind of have relief with it? And some people will say like, oh, the only time I ever feel relief is really strange when I'm on holiday. Mm-hmm. Like I eat what I want, I drink what I want. And when I'm on holiday, my symptoms are, you know, and I think if you, if you don't believe in the kind of gut brain connection, it's like, that's a really powerful example. I think a lot of people do experience that, right? When they take themselves out of that yeah. busy, stressful environment. Absolutely. All their symptoms are better on the weekend or, you know, they tend to be a bit better on Friday and Saturday, but then they get nervous on Sunday because they're starting work again on the Monday. But I do also just want to highlight that, you know, I'm not saying that diet isn't effective and that we all must be meditating and practicing yoga. It's that everything is interconnected and so diet isn't the only piece of the puzzle yoga isn't the only piece of the puzzle it's about creating a toolkit to be able to navigate life a little bit better to relax those nervous systems and essentially give your gut the best chance of um functioning like it should yeah i i spoke to a uh uh she was actually a child neurologist recently um, and uh, had been doing a lot of work with kind of like autism and a lot of clinical research. But one of her biggest things was, it's like one of the biggest single things that you can do every day is just get out in nature. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's, 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 it's interesting, right? This, this lady's at like the cutting edge of like neurology. But one of her biggest things is like, just get outside for 20 minutes a day and eat like your grandmother did. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, but there's actually something really lovely about that, isn't there? Just like, actually, you're talking about yoga there, but you can, I guess you can even dial it back even more. Like, what is something that you can do every single day that isn't on a screen where you're feeling relatively present and focused and you're moving in some way? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's this Japanese practice, I forget the Japanese word for it now, but it's it's called forest bathing. And it's about just spending That's time. That's what she was talking about. Yes, exactly. Yeah, spending time in nature, spending time in a forest. There's studies that have shown that if we walk barefoot on grass first thing in the morning, it can help reduce cortisol levels so all these things about connecting with nature you know connecting with mother nature because you know essentially that grounds us right down and can help to release uh, decrease the stress hormones Uh, do you think uh, right now inside the kind of nhs is 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 yoga and and nature bathing is that part of do you think that's coming more and more into the into the kind of conversation so i currently don't work in the nhs and i haven't done for the past five years however i do have a colleague who recently sent me um 
a program which was looking at implementing yoga for those with chronic gut conditions. So I do think it is being spoken about and I do think it is appearing a bit more on, on the mainstream. And actually just on the note of yoga then, if someone's listening to this and like yoga still to them is like, you know, it's, 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 it's yoga pants and a mat <laughs> and it's, it's like a Californian kind of distant idea what what are really simple ways like particularly if you maybe don't want to go to a class or something like that what are, are there simple ways to kind of get into it yeah so um youtube is your best friend and the great thing about youtube is you can literally type in 10 minute gut directed yoga flow and you can sit on your bedroom floor on the carpet and just do these very simple twists and the reason twists are so good is because they give our internal organs a little massage and can help really get things moving through, whether that's gas, whether that's poop, whether that's, you know, whatever. So so that would really be the best place to start um, until I do have some offerings coming and then you'll be able to check out my website and there'll be lots of videos uh, on there that people can watch as well. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, intolerances, because I think this has become more and more of a, of a thing where you kind of, you know, I've got a friend that's a chef and he runs a kind of fine dining restaurant and uh, life has become increasingly more difficult for him because a table of, you know, he'll tell me the story of a table of 10 people will kind of turn up on a Saturday night and in there there's a there's a gluten intolerance, there's a dairy intolerance, there's a histamine intolerance. And he said... 10, 15 years ago as a chef, like this, this, I wasn't, I wasn't dealing with this and it's making life very, very difficult for me. Is this genuinely that there are more and more intolerances? You know, what, what is kind of driving this or is there like a hyper awareness now to symptoms and people are kind of reacting to that? Um, I mean, firstly, I guess for anyone listening who might not know, like a food intolerance is difficulty in digesting certain foods and symptoms of a food intolerance can include things like stomach pain, stomach pain, bloating, diarrhea, flatulence, headaches, that type of thing. And this is not to be mistaken for a food allergy, which involves an autoimmune response and symptoms are life threatening and includes the things like hives, rashes, difficulty breathing, anaphylactic shock. But food intolerances, yes, are far more common than food allergies. And they, it's estimated that they can affect about 20% of adults in the UK. And although they're not life threatening, food intolerances can obviously significantly impact the quality of life of many people and people's relationship with food. So it definitely is worth getting on top of any sort of food intolerances. I think the reason we've seen that a rise in food intolerances over the years is to do with how Western lifestyles affect our gut microbiota. So basically more time spent indoors, less time in nature can have a direct impact on the gut microbes and make them less resilient to um, infection and intolerances. So there's also this discussion around the use of and the belief of that antibiotics could be influencing our likelihood of developing intolerances as well. And there is good evidence that the more antibiotics someone is given as a child, the more likely they are to have a food allergy or intolerance later in life, as the antibiotics can kill the healthy bacteria that colonise the gut. 
So the most common food intolerances we see are things like lactose intolerance, gluten intolerance, and actually something like a histamine intolerance. Um, but I always just caution people to try to get tested for these things if possible. And lactose intolerance and gluten intolerance, well, people can get tested for lactose intolerance using a hydrogen breath test. Gluten intolerance is a little bit more difficult to diagnose. But I just always say that no one should be avoiding main food groups unless they have a confirmed diagnosis. So let's take gluten, for example. So gluten-containing foods like bread, pasta, wheat in general, they're a fantastic source of protein, fibre, B vitamins and iron. So if someone then automatically cuts those foods out of their diet, they're really missing out on a key group of nutrients. And similarly with lactose-containing foods, they're a great source of protein, calcium, those fat-soluble vitamins, so A, vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin K. And if people cut these groups out unnecessarily, they could be putting themselves at nutritional risk. And so if you have, if you, if you come out with a kind of gluten intolerance, then is that, and, and say that is like, it's identified, it's actually diagnosed, right? You are intolerant to, to, to gluten. Is that a static, is that a static thing where now for the rest of your life, you kind of have to avoid gluten? Not necessarily. And gluten intolerance is an interesting one because it's different to celiac disease, which is the autoimmune condition, which actually causes damage to the lining of the gut when you eat gluten. But a gluten intolerance has symptoms very similar to celiac disease. But the thing with gluten is that there is still some debate as to whether it's caused by gluten itself or another protein found in wheat-based products known as fructans. And fructans forms one of the FODMAP groups. And therefore, people automatically make an association that they're gluten intolerant when actually it could be the fructans they're sensitive to, which is why, for example, I use an example of a patient I had in clinic, convinced they had a gluten intolerance, self-diagnosed, avoided gluten their whole life, avoided all beer, still came to me with symptoms. And it was obvious that they were consuming a high level of fructans in their diet, which are also found in things like onion and garlic so what we did was we had removed onion and garlic for four weeks symptoms completely resolved and he was therefore then able to reintroduce gluten containing foods and even beer was back on the menu and would so if you had like a you know that a lot of people will say that okay they eat a standard loaf from the supermarket and they fit they get the gas they get the bloating they kind of get the pain but they eat like a, a long proved sourdough bread and they don't seem to experience the symptoms is that something that would also have fructans in it like a you know like a more ancient grain like so there uh, the sourdough process can uh, does reduce the level of fructans within the bread which is why people therefore uh, sometimes can tolerate sourdough bread better than um, normal bread uh, when we look at spelt sourdough bread, so 100% spelt sourdough bread, that fermentation process actually breaks down or reduces the fructans entirely. So that would be like a fructan-free um, uh, bread. So this this kind of like uh, theory at the moment that seems to become more and more prevalent, like sugar, dairy and gluten is the inflammatory devil food. Do you think that has swung a little bit too far the other way? 
Yeah, absolutely. As in, I, I, I think people are demonizing these foods way more than they should be. Um, you know, as a dietitian, as a food first approach, like I said, I would never recommend people to cut out major food groups unless there was a specific reason and clinical diagnosis to do so. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, when we think about um, uh, gut disorders, I think SIBO is a really interesting one because it's become, I think people have become more aware of it, certainly in the last kind of five or, or six years. And I think that it almost sort of was a little bit underground to start with. And people would go and say that they'd read something online. Maybe they'd had IBS symptoms that they couldn't get on top of. They tried lots of things. They go to their GP, for example, and they say, I think I've got SIBO. And the GP would say, I don't know what that is. You need to kind of get off the internet. <laughs> so let's just start with what is SIBO to start with? Yeah, so SIBO or SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And essentially what that means is, you well, normally all of our gut bacteria, most of our gut bacteria reside in the large intestine and they are there to break down and ferment the food that we eat. Sometimes, for whatever reason, some of that bacteria can kind of crawl its way up into the small intestine. And therefore, the bacteria have access to a whole host of undigested food and they ferment this food and it can produce a lot of excess gas and additional bloating. And so symptoms, like you say, are very similar to IBS. Um, the thing with SIBO is it is very difficult to diagnose. So the gold standard way to diagnose it would be to do a small bowel aspirate, which is when you shove a tube down your throat and take some aspirate from your small bowel and then test it under a microscope and so on. But that is very invasive and it's also very expensive and hardly any centres in the UK I know would do it routinely just for the healthy population. Um, the other option is to complete a hydrogen breath test, so a lactulose hydrogen breath test. But the problem with this is these tests aren't that accurate and there's a high risk of um, false positive results, meaning we can over-diagnose people with SIBO. In terms of the treatments for SIBO, um, there are different options. So some people do a medication-first approach, which would be a course of antibiotics to essentially help kill off the bacteria overgrowing in the small intestine. The only problem with this is sometimes, um, unless it, it truly is SIBO, you know, overly prescribing antibiotics can sometimes just then worsen the problem if it's not actually the antibiotics which are going to help because it's not actually SIBO in the first place. So we do have to be careful with that. The other option could be dietary changes and something even uh, like the low FODMAP diet can essentially help to underfeed the overgrowing bacteria in the small intestine. Um, they die off and therefore then we can reintroduce FODMAPs in a normal way. And the reason that approach is sometimes good is because, it, like I said, it might not actually be SIBO and it could actually just be IBS anyway. And therefore the low FODMAP diet would be recommended for the treatment of IBS. And often you can then get to the root cause of the problem in terms of if there were any specific foods which were like triggering or worsening the symptoms. And, and and with that then, do you think that there is a risk when people get like hyper fixated on certain things like it is Crohn's, it is IBD, it is SIBO, it is low stomach acid, that actually you become so fixated on one issue, you're not thinking about the kind of broader, 
what else is going on with the body, with the digestive system, with diet, all of those sorts of things? Yeah, uh, absolutely. We, we can become very fixated on well, diet in particular or specific foods or specific symptoms when, you know, I hope we've made it clear from this episode is that actually when we look at gut health, it's about this more holistic uh, um, you know, approach. It's not just one piece of a puzzle which is going to solve everything. It's about several pieces of the puzzle which are going to improve things the most. So essentially for people, it's if they're struggling with their symptoms, it's about like really looking to fill all pieces of the pie here. So yes, diet is going to be a large part of that. You can see uh, go and see a professional to kind of who's going to be able to help support you on that diet. Yes, there may be some diagnostics that you can do, but it is just as important. Uh, well, the risk of that then is, is that you become then hyper obsessed about that diet. And that in itself can cause problems from either staying on restrictive diets for too long or creating a really negative relationship with food. So it's about, yes, diet, yes, exercise, you know, yes, mindfulness, you know, all of those things basically in conjunction with each other. Yeah, absolutely. And and for you, Caitlin, I'm I'm kind of interested. So f- is is IBS where you're going to sort of lay your hat? Is that the kind of area where you want to spend most of your sort of time moving forward, seeing clients one on one? What are your sort of ambitions? So I do find myself working mostly with those with IBS and other functional gut disorders, i.e. those who don't have chronic IBD or even, um, you know, I do work with people with celiac disease too, but it's more people who have, you know, digestive symptoms and everything else has been ruled out and they're not really sure, you know, what's causing their symptoms and maybe they've tried changing their diet but nothing has really like helped or they're not really getting to the bottom of things. Sort of that's where I see myself sitting within that group of people. And in terms of what I have offering, so I am developing a program which is essentially this more holistic way to improving gut health. So it will include dietary changes, it will include yoga, meditation and breath work to essentially help to calm the nervous systems and um, get people to understand that you know diet isn't the only answer when it comes to gut health and gut disorders Um, and just essentially starting a new way of life and helping to just reconnect themselves with their self and reconnect the mind and body. And if you want to find out more about what Caitlin's up to, I know she's got some exciting things in the pipeline as well. Caitlin Colucci, which is K Caitlin and Colucci double C I dot com. If you want to find more information and you can also uh, follow her on Instagram. She's the mission dietitian. Uh, Caitlin, thanks so much for taking the time today. Maybe uh, we can touch base in a little while from now and see how things are progressing. And and when you've launched some of these new things that are going on, we can chat a bit about that. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me. 